Hey everybody, this is the Machination Log for whatever day it is. It's sometime in 2017 and I've got Alicia on the other end of the wire. Alicia, how's, uh, how's smoking indoors going? Um, it's better. This, uh, I mean, vaping tastes a lot better. That's a big bonus. <laughs> um, like, it doesn't taste like shit. Is that part of the romantic appeal somewhere, I thought? I didn't, uh... That it tastes better? No, no, with regular smoking. I thought I thought that was sort of part of its whole deal, is that it is kind of nasty, and that's... Yeah, I mean, well, with this, they I burnt the wick on the first day that I got it, because I wasn't quite paying attention, and it has a very sensitive touch button. So it feels more like smoking. Oh, okay. It also gets really hot. Which is great. That's more formaldehyde. That's what I'm used to. (laughs) (laughs) So you just, you don't need the nicotine. You need the toxicity. That's what I'm noticing because I've had nicotine for two weeks. It's not been a lack of nicotine, but I'm still just going insane. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Alicia. Uh, This is... This is going to be a smorgasbord of a podcast, but it's mostly going to revolve around the first chapter of a book called Forms. And uh, I will let you have the floor explaining what in the world this book is about, or will be about once we get to the rest of it. Okay. So my cute way of bringing it up was going to be talking about being depressed and saying, I was so depressed and I couldn't argue with myself. Because normally when you argue with yourself, you do it in a kind of linear form, right? It happens across time, at least in our conception of it. I guess you could make an argument that that's not true. But in any, whether or not it's a linear argument, it is a dialectic. Um, and I was not able to participate in that dialectic because I literally couldn't pay attention for long enough. And that's one of the um, things that she's talking about in this book is a regular conception about the ways that ideas interact. Is It seems weird. I mean, this book is almost brand new. I, it yeah. came out a couple of years ago. It's either 2015 or 2014. And I guess I don't follow literary criticism, so I had no idea this wasn't a thing, or if she's just expounding on an idea that maybe did exist somewhere else. But the treatise seems to be about connecting the social forms that inform the way that a book is written to the actual like syntactic mechanical forms that the book takes. They're both, both have been analyzed for a while now. Um, the social have been cropping up more and more, but at least the middle of the 20th century, we beat with a hose all of the different ways in which sentences can be constructed and punctuation and all the rest of it. That's just modernism systematized everything. Um, mm-hmm. but has this really not been a, I mean, I, I don't know how much of the scene, maybe that's part of the reason you wanted to read the book too, because you <laughs> feel free, feel not free to plead yeah. ignorance on this point, but like, is this really not yeah. something people fuse? Yeah. I think that one of the things that she's talking about is not just like the, the social forms outside of the book. So not just the context in which the book is written which we're by now used to including in our literary discussions, um, like something about how, like, 
if you were to write like decent literary criticism today on something, I think you do talk about the uh, how it's a reflection of its social and historical context in addition to examining the work. Sometimes you end up talking primarily about the social and cultural context. For example, if you're talking about Game of Thrones and you're saying like Game of Thrones is sexist, you, you part of the you know, the sub part of that argument is that it's reflecting a sexism that's inherent in society, right? And what she's saying is that we can look at it, we can look at it through that lens, but really what we're seeing is this form of um, sexism in the particular ways that it's reflected in Game of Thrones. So um, I guess the form would be sexual assault as a tool of control over women. That's how this interacts with other forms that are in the, um, in the work like medieval social structures or political social political structures and um like some of the um the fantasy elements of the work which we'd have to break out into their specific forms so i think what what stood out to me was really her um i i don't i don't know it feels pretty revolutionary to me reading it like there are points where i'm just like god damn this book is going to change everything but i again don't know like, this is really far into, like, the literary part of literature for me, literary criticism. Like, and I, I like the squishy stuff. Like, I love uh, Derrida, but, like, this is this was way squishy for me in parts. What do you like about Derrida? I, I just like how, like, complex and uh, not quite symbolic it is, especially when I was at the phase when I was reading it was, like, when I was right out of, um, when it came out of high school, I was really interested in, uh, literature that didn't have one-to-one symbolism, which actually really connects to what we're talking about here, because the kind of style of analysis that you learn about reading, uh, novels when you're in school is, like, to, uh, examine everything as if it's a symbol and see how that specific symbol relates to the themes of the book, right? So you have themes and you have symbols. And that's really what you talk about when you're doing like high school level literary analysis, right? Um, and I actually see that show up all the time. Game of Thrones just ended, right? This yeah, season. Yeah, the season so just I, concluded. So. so that's really what's on my mind right now. <laughs> <laughs> But I see this crop up in the Game of Thrones criticism and reviews all the time is that people will either evaluate them by saying like this really connected to the themes and I thought that was really good or this did not connect to the themes and I thought that was really bad. So when I was kind of like getting out of high school and into college, I was really, really interested in what is this... um, and she she actually brings it up as like a new criticism thing. Like, what is it that makes reading the book different from reading a description of its themes and uh, symbols? And do symbols connect in this like in this one to one way? My my feeling was that they couldn't uh, really connect in a one to one way to the concepts that they represent. It's not like you just have a symbol. I have a rose. It represents love. And what this rose is doing in the story or the poem is a clear representation of what happens to love. And it, like, it's not, it's not just such a simple, um, you, you know, relationship in certain kinds of literature, especially when you start getting into 
the sort of stuff I was into, which was this really like nihilistic, despairing, like, uh, you know, I, I've seen your bookshelf. It's pretty anarchistic in the grand scheme of things, <laughs> which is itself. I mean, to, to pull the more literal version of what she's talking about. I mean, anarchism tends to, we've talked about the way in which those books are written. They <laughs> tend to reflect the character of what is being talked about in some very basic ways, like a complete lack of cohesion. They, um, they, they, have, they have this attitude about them that sort of eschews the decorum that you would expect in a normal book, and that makes perfect sense in the context of what they're writing about. Um, <laughs> they sort of embody that. And there aren't, you know, there, there aren't an infinite number of examples of that for her to draw on. And that's part of what makes me curious what she's going to talk about in the book itself. I mean, the introduction, she only hints at the four different categories of form that she's talking about. And she also defines what she means by form and in true dialectical style. She basically says that it means whatever she needs it to mean. Um, yeah. So that was... This is like a that's a really modernist like literary uh, perspective like the one that we uh, learn and um, even the idea like you have to learn the rules before you break them. I know Ezra Pound said that. I don't know who else said that, but there's like this whole like our whole conception of literature when we go through like a standard literary program is this very sort of mechanistic like. This equals this. Okay, this is the formula. This is how I'm going to figure it out. And it takes some imagination, but it's a game that you can you can learn uh, pretty pretty easily, and then you, like apply it. Um, and as long as you do that, and especially if you can come up with some sort of novel symbolism, it's really fun. And your English teachers really like you. Yeah, I can attest. So. Um, the tools that I had for literary criticism didn't match up to the books that I was reading, like Temple of the Golden Pavilion, where he goes on and on in these like really elaborate descriptions of the world, and you want to read it as symbolic, but there's really no meaning there. And you keep thinking about it and thinking about it and thinking about it, and there's no meaning there. The contrast would be David Lynch, where everything, every symbol in David Lynch has a direct correspondence with something else, some idea. And that, I mean, it, it makes sense that people do that because it gives, it gives you not only as a, even as a reader, something to work with. It also forms constrain and that helps tremendously with creativity. I mean, mm -hmm. because without something to put into without a box to put what you're doing into it's exceptionally hard to know what to actually write or evoke i mean it's it's always the it's it's the ultimate goal of any creator to to put whatever's in their head into the real world and it always feels liberating to eliminate those boundaries um right up until you don't have any so the the way that we fell into this trap i mean movies have been in this trap for decades now where almost every movie when it is breaking one of the many many golden rules of cinema it does so in a flagrant fashion that makes it look like they're proud it's that they're pulling it off this way i mean this is yeah. where this is where all of the meta humor has come from the egregious amount of fourth walling i mean you can't watch a tv show that doesn't show the camera crew um 
that's all part of this we know that this is all just a formula. And they use that as an excuse to be even more formulaic. Um, it's all, yeah. It all wraps in on itself. Um, and that's, yeah. all part, that's all part of being part of a system that we don't think we can be separate from. from. So the best we can do is at least wink and nod and know, say that we know we're part of it, um, which that would be the form that this takes in 2015. Told you that we were going to be able to talk for an hour about this first chapter. Oh, I mean, I don't know that we're talking entirely about the book at this point. I think we're, I think we're <laughs> extending this a bit. Um, but that's been, that's a really powerful insight. And that's what I'm saying is that there's this like conception that like even the conception of the system is a part of our involvement in literature that we see these these rules the cinematic rules of presentation and we're actually normally not talking about like long shot medium shot close-up do you know what i mean when we're talking about the rules of storytelling we're talking about the narrative we're talking about the kind of characters that can be involved i mean we've built out we've built out an infrastructure that is almost inviolable um, and this, the I guess movies is maybe the wrong analogy to draw in 2017. The, the analogy to draw now is probably Twitter because everybody feels like social media is a box that they can't escape because that's where all the screaming takes place. But all the screaming is being filtered through this one horn. And that sucks, mm-hmm. but that's absolutely, I mean, that, that's another form. That's mm-hmm. that is, and that shapes everything about the way you write. Um, it's yeah, and there's no way there's no way to pull the social and the technical fields apart. There, Twitter's restriction on what you are allowed to post, and even the way that has bled into other forms of social media. I mean, brevity is not like the soul of anything. It's an absolute necessity to make sure that something gets read. And that changes everything. That's actually not true. Um, okay, fine. Entirely. Well, no, I'm just because <laughs> this is my job, <laughs> so I, I have this conversation probably like I don't know at least once a month with somebody where I'm like, okay, well, you may think that it makes sense to write shorter blog posts. Like it really depends on the field. So usually I do an analysis of what keywords they're looking at. I mean, this is this is also participating in this form. I have an analysis tool that lets me see what is the most shared on any given keyword or domain. So I start by looking at that and then I see what has the most shares, what post length has the most shares. And then I advise that we aim towards that. And that doesn't end up advising you toward short stuff? Yeah, not all the time. Okay. I mean, I hope not. I don't like writing in short form. Yeah. So I'm, wa- I'm waiting for this era to be over. What? It is? Congratulations. Excellent. I guess I'll put out <laughs> a long podcast then. No, that's... Um, but no, it, it, the idea behind your book, and I, I, that sort of just rounds back on what I started with, um, I'm just surprised this hasn't already been a thing. Because it seems yeah. self-evident that you wouldn't be able to take these things apart. Yeah, I but I think there are other components of it, like genre, narrative, dialectic, that are important to get into and also contribute to it being a little bit unusual. What about, let's go into genre. Um, she only graces it, actually. I think I have 
I think I highlighted the the instance where she talks about genre. Yeah, but I think we have to do that. If we're doing that, we have to do the definition of form, right? Out, outside of just contrasting with um, genre. All right, let's pull that up here. What we got? It's an arrangement of elements and ordering, patterning, or shaping. Right, but then as she goes into it more, she says there are five main ideas that we have about forms. One is that forms constrain, so which makes sense. Forms differ. Various forms overlap and interact. Forms travel. Forms do political work in particular historical contexts. So they kind of shape what's possible. Um, so she wants to use that, this idea of form to analyze both social and uh, social political and literary situations um, and texts. So later on, she starts to develop this idea of form and says a form has to be uh, portable. So like it could be used across multiple contexts. So, um, uh, when her example that I particularly liked, even though I, I don't know if she applied it accurately, was an amphitheater. An amphitheater is a portable, right? Like you could hear about an amphitheater and then build an amphitheater. It would still be an amphitheater. And then that it's recognizable regardless of, um, like, we can all agree that it's the form it is, right? It, it's, it's a fact more than it is a... I guess that's a contestable for term in this context, but like, well, well she, she specifically contrasts that to a genre um, later <laughs> on where a genre, even though it feels like the fact that there is some sort of aesthetic grouping to a genre, it's substantially more debatable whether or not something actually is a genre. Whereas in the case of an amphitheater, there's something, there's something, I mean, in the case of an amphitheater, it's literally physical, um, but there are, there are almost specifications that yeah. must be met. And that's that's sort of that's what makes it a form is that it has yeah. these boundaries to it in what yeah. can and can't qualify. Yeah. So amphitheater is an example. Rhyming couplet is my other f- favorite example so far. Yeah. Simple. In thinking about this. I mean, we've only read 25 pages. I'm sure she's got plenty more. I'm sure she's got <laughs> plenty more examples of all these things further on in the book. Yeah, I hope so. I, I still am waiting for her to pull out like a, a serious analysis of um, something like she she looked at this book that I've never heard of because I'm not a lit major and um, talked about how it was an example. Of, well, let's just say that um, <laughs> and, and define what a genre is. <laughs> so a genre has a historical has a historical basis. So um, it's classification by some kind of characteristic like styles, themes, or even marketing. Um, and it's not portable across contexts. It's not portable across time even, uh, let alone space. So for example, the genre um, horror, right? Horror as a genre is different today than it was in 1970. Like, it's evolved because it changes in response to the historical context. Yeah. I mean, what what is scary today was not scary before or vice versa. In the same way, comedy is another genre. What's funny today is is not what was funny back in the day. 
Yeah, and she points out that they can be, yeah, they can be challenged um, or like kind of messed with in a way that forms can't be messed with. Like if you if you try to change a rhyming couplet into something else, it's just not a rhyming couplet. Yeah, you know. And the 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 example that's coming to mind for this, uh, if we consider yeah. a comedy a genre, um, a joke is not. A joke is a form. Yeah. A joke's got a punchline, a joke's got a setup. It doesn't have to be funny in every particular instance, but a joke is recognizable without historical context. Yeah. Yeah, precisely. Precisely. That's a great way to put it. Um, I think what's exciting about Game of Thrones, I'm, I'm really trying to figure it, I'm really trying to understand how people like it still. And um, dragons aside, obviously obviously. I don't know. I think there's plenty to recommend Game of Thrones on a very trashy soapbox or a soap opera level. I can, I totally see the appeal. That's that's not what I want from it, though. (laughs) I wanted to (laughs) Those days are over, Alicia. A complex political story asking a deep question about individuals and society and what power and influence are. That's that's what I was there for. And you got two perfectly good seasons of that, and now you get to push that aside. That was the tax. That was you were now paying for those two good seasons with five seasons of bullshit of people <laughs> staring and dialoguing at each other. I cannot I they actually did kill somebody this season. I didn't think they were gonna do it. I thought they were just gonna wait. We can spoilers, right? Absolutely. Don't watch yeah. Game of Thrones. Here's Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah. So and, actually- and funny enough, they killed the political intrigue character. Who yeah. would have thought? They killed the character that has like complexity to his plot. Um See, that was a good example because that was immensely emotionally satisfying, but from like the sheer level of watching a story where you used to be able to speculate about it and try to figure things out. And now you can't do that anymore because reality doesn't make sense. Like it was just a catastrophe. I'm sad, but I think what's exciting about it to people is that it is, um, bridging a, a gap between two, um, genres, two or more, right? Like it used to be one kind of story and now it's becoming a fantasy story. And that is pretty exciting overall. I mean, that was pretty fun to read in the books. Um, They didn't, he doesn't like kill all of the sociopolitical components of it in service of the fantasy (laughs) elements of the story. (laughs) For one. (laughs) For two, like, you know, he actually understands how fantasy works and that it's not just an action movie. Like, I I would argue that in, in fantasy, there's a lot of, um, especially the kind that he's writing, there's a lot of, like, elemental symbolism, and, like, magic has some sort of poetic re- resonance or capacity in the story. It's not just, like, you know what, this is, like, the guy in your D&D group who won't do anything but throw fireball. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's how I feel about the writers of the show right now. Like, they're that guy. And I'm just sitting there and I'm like, please, please, honey, sweetheart, lovely, lovely child, please do something besides throw a fireball into this cave that we're in. Please. 
and he just won't listen. Again, I know I've I know I've expressed this exact sentiment before on the podcast, so I'll keep it brief, but I respect Game of Thrones the show for giving its audience exactly what it wants. They know that they want its audience wants to be challenged. That's not true at all. That's why it's this season was the most watched of any of them, is because that's not what they're after. They want everybody to be themselves to the absolute nth degree, and that is what they're doing now. Everybody has become larger and larger than life to such an extent that they're not dying anymore. Except yeah. for Baelish, because he talks too quietly and has too many sinister motives. So he got what he, he did deserved. He did a good job, actually, I thought, in the last episode, the actor. I thought he varied his tone a lot more than normal, which was exciting. It was, um, I did not know he had it in him, based on everything I've ever watched from him. I mean, the most dynamic he ever was was at the end of The Wire, as far as I could tell, when he was, like, excited he won an electoral victory. And that was really not actually all that adrenalized either. So, no, he's... He was a terrible actor pretty much the whole time, but... Yeah, but he had more range in this last episode. Yeah. Just in was, time. That was pretty impressive. Yeah. <laughs> but, I don't know, people People know that the show is going to kill the characters they love, which they think is to emotionally challenge them, but it's not, it's not only emotional. And part of the emotional challenge has to do, in the books, has to do with narrative. So the reason that the first season like got people so hard and engaged people so deeply was Ned dying in the end, which deeply challenges our narrative beliefs. Really from the first episode, when Catelyn, and that's not in the first episode, I think it's the second or third episode, where Catelyn fights back when the assassin has a knife to her throat. And she's not like, it's not like a mama bear moment where she's like, no, you'll hurt my baby. Like, she's just fighting for her own survival. And I just had so infrequently seen women physically move that way on TV where she was like, she was competent. She wasn't like a fighter. She wasn't like, you know, like Arya is now. Arya might be my least favorite character now. It's sad, man. Um, it's sad. Not a fan. No, I mean, but that's my my favorite moment, um, which I think came off very, very well in the show to just completely translate this to a Game of Thrones podcast. Since we haven't done one of those anyway, I guess we might as well do it now. Um, I think, we, yeah. I mean, we could wait for Thomas because we've been rehearsing. But, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, then we'll we'll save some of it. But I think my... My favorite example of the the cruelty of reality and the way that it plays into um, Martin's writing and subsequently into the show in this particular case before they went off the rails was when Jamie loses his hand. I mean, yeah. someone just fucking cuts his hand off and it just comes at the, it's near the end of an episode somewhere and it does not seem for the world like it's about to happen. And then, oh, he won't shut up. They cut his arm off. Um that's the level of callousness that most shows just like writers just don't have the stomach for that. Um, yeah. And that is yeah. really effective in that show or it was until I completely yeah. stopped doing it. But um, yeah. Yeah. And like, I'm not saying the books are perfect, but like 
the that is such a surprising and interesting element and like we actually live in a world with that kind of brutality where that kind of brutality happens all the time and we have no capacity to reckon with it or think about it at all as uh, relatively privileged americans like we we have no ability to like think about that like level of brutality but that's actually a part of human nature and there's no really good way to explore it that isn't literary like this is what literature is for this is what it's good for is giving you a way to think about it even if it's not a part of your immediate experience and when brutality is a part of your immediate experience it fucking clouds out everything else in the world and you get really confused because there's not a literary thing to help you understand it and you say oh my heart wasn't pure enough like i wasn't i wasn't heroic enough and good enough to get plot armor to protect me from this brutality and um or, you know, this is all a part of my story where, you know, in the future I'm going to change and grow and, like, blah, 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 blah. And, but that's not really, like, that's not all that's there. And it makes it impossible for us to make decisions because there's a whole, like, component of human nature that doesn't factor into our, um, our storytelling. And it makes me mad. Yeah. Because I mean, we need to think about it. <laughs> I mean, the what we've tried to do it the other way around. That's we tried to make Fukuyama end history. And uh because that, that just solves it in the other direction. You just you figure out how to properly immortalize moral people and then you don't have to concern yourself with brutality. It's that's the part that's unraveling slowly but surely in the, uh, the era of protesting um, is the degree to which that's not actually what's happening. We just thought it was because for a little while there, things were looking up. And then Game of Thrones hits, of all things, and a fantasy genre book is flaunting all of that in a way that, for whatever reason, had very broad appeal for a little while. Yeah, because I think it's because we're, we just have like a dearth of ways of thinking about this. Like, we live in an incredibly sociopolitically complex environment. I know that my experience of this is probably a little unusual, but it's sort of interesting from uh, from a sort of partisan perspective. There's the, the alt-right in particular. Like, those guys grew up on the same corner of the internet as I did, where you could see things like that every day. Every day you could watch somebody's hand get chopped off or like somebody being brutally uh, dismembered in some way. And, it, you know, you can't really bring it up in polite company. So I feel a little weird talking about it in public. But that, <laughs> that's what that part of the Internet was like. Yes, it and, was um, for a long while. And it can really fuck you up mentally or or i don't know if fuck you up is accurate but there's such like highs and lows like you see something cute you see something extremely sexual and you see something extremely brutal and you're just constantly getting hits of that cute hot brutal cute hot brutal cute hot brutal and it just does something to your mind and 
that's what those guys are coming from. That's the world that they lived in. And they lived in it for far longer with far more seriousness than I did. And um, then, you know, any any liberal has besides maybe Hillary Clinton. Um, who okay, that was, I had no idea who you were going to say. And I don't know what you mean by that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean... There's, there's. <laughs> You're gonna have to explain that. I don't know where that name came from in this conversation. <laughs> okay. Well, all right. It's gonna take a minute, but I will explain it. I, so. you're free. You're free to publicly retract it if it was just a reaction to something. But I don't. I don't know no. where you're going okay. with that. Okay. So SEAL Team Six. Do you know what I mean? Like, she's heard all that. She's seen all that. So people actually in the government and involved in that are aware of the kind of brutality that's possible in the world. And probably, like, a lot of people in NGO world who actually actually do work with people, like, have a sense of what kind of brutality is possible. Because, you know, like my sister, for example. Are they better off with that knowledge? No, it kills them. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's hard to know. Um, you have to react to it somehow. You have to have some kind of answer to it. But then you come back to like our world of media, where none of that's really represented. Um, like none of the actual brutality that happens in the world is represented. It's sort of like there's no real way of uh, processing it. There's no real cultural way of processing it. So it's sort of like, you know, in World War One, how they learn to rotate people out. You just like kind of rotate people out and you offer them therapy so that they don't get burnt out. But they do get burnt out. So. But is it, I guess that just loop the question back around one step further. Is it good or bad that we are not exposed to that brutality? I think it's bad. I think it's a part of human experience and we're not really able to make decisions uh, from or, or even get a baseline understanding of what human nature is. If like, even in this conversation, I, I come from a position where apparently in my heart, I believe that kindness and love are natural and brutality is unnatural, but I don't, I don't know that that's true. I doubt that it's true. Really. I just have like a really biased uh, perspective on it. And it's very difficult to acknowledge the fact of brutality in the world and human brutality as a part of human nature, because we don't have narratives that explore that or explain that. But that is sort of a deliberately cultivated internal monologue. It's not as if believe, I mean, one of the easiest ways to tear a society apart is to lead into <clears throat> a narrative where people are inherently destructive. That's how you eliminate, that's the fastest way to destroy a cooperative society is to assume that. Um, that's true. I, I mean, it's, it's just a matter of degrees, I guess. I mean, you're saying that it's destroying these NGOs and Hillary Clinton and the Navy SEALs, etc., cetera, uh, to have to experience this or pull the trigger or what have you. But, we want some degree of it. And I guess the question then becomes, is this a matter of the angle 
by which you see it? Is it a matter of the magnitude? I mean, what, what amount of this do we actually have to be exposed to? What is, what is the healthy dose of brutality? I don't know. I guess it depends somewhat on how realistic you want to be about the world. And yeah, it's true that the brutality does get like more competitive and creative when it's more public. So I don't know. Yeah, I guess I'm just not I'm not I'm not sure where the line we're trying to draw is then. I mean, is the if the public is too soft, what is too hard? Where is the threshold? Yeah. I'm at the beginning stages of thinking about it deeply, which is why I had the initial uh which is why I had the problem of, of Im- imagining that people are kind by nature, kind and loving by nature, and they're only being changed by these experiences of viewing brutality or maybe from being ground through a machine that takes you and tells you you're the best and then makes you kill people. Like, even even that kind of has, like, smacks of this idea that I'm sort of trying to get rid of or or see what conclusions I can come to when I stop using it to think about things. So I have no idea what's good or bad for society, really, as a whole. But I do know that we have ideas about human nature that don't include brutality, which is a part of human nature. And I would really, really like to be able to think about that using fiction. And Game of Thrones was excellent. I mean, Song of Ice and Fire was excellent for that. It kind of traumatized me. Sometimes I think that it sort of traumatized me, especially the uh, Theon torture scenes which I skipped in Game of Thrones. I didn't actually watch them Um, because in the books, it was such a tremendous uh, moment for me to realize that on some level, I'd always thought that I wouldn't, I I mean, like I knew that I would break under torture, but I hadn't really, I hadn't really felt that experience of, of really knowing that. And it did give me an image of myself as like weaker and more helpless than I'd felt before. So perhaps it wouldn't be good for everybody else to also have that experience. That seems a little unfair. I mean, if you were going, if if it was good for you, why would you suppose it's not good for other people? I mean, but was it good for me? That's what I'm saying. Because uh, I felt I thought I thought we were assuming it was. I mean, I have a more realistic view of myself, but I don't know if that's preferable. I mean, it is for me because that's my life my life mission and and experience and you know so on and so forth but like if that's not your if your purpose is to live an enjoyable life maybe not (laughs) or or even to like be more personally powerful it probably gets in your way to be confronted with this uh experience of helplessness i mean it wouldn't specifically be helplessness but to tie this back to social media uh the most fundamental complaint about everyone sharing their experiences in sound bites and small numbers of characters is the way that we bury the amount of dirt we have to dig in order to make the holes that we display. Um, if we've got, if social media is doing the same thing to virtually every other category of human existence, um, I mean, no one, the reason you have to put up posters uh, that say that you're awesome. I'm specifically talking about Tumblr here for the most part, but I find Tumblr to be one of the more uh, one of the more id spots on the internet. So I I actually find it though it is an unreliable narrator. I think as a narrator it betrays more about the psyche of American life than 
most other places. Um, a need to reassure yourself that you're a good person and a strong person and a cool person in the way that sites like that do is clearly a reaction to feeling as if you are weak, untalented, stupid, etc. Yeah. Well, you had an idea. This a Sorry. So if you wanted to be like a skateboarder, you would be looking at like the best skateboard tricks on YouTube. Like you wouldn't just be like looking at the best guy at your skate park. Yeah. No, you look at the absolute largest pond. I mean, there are entire videos. I, there's, I forget what the name. It's like people are awesome or something. It's just like compilation videos of people doing fantastically, either sophisticated or dangerous physical stunts, and it's not representative of anything. I mean, it does. But if you're watching it, it's the point of comparison you draw because your brain is lazy. And it doesn't manage to filter that out and go, oh, right, this is one hundredth of one percent of people. Yeah. There's a genre of video that's just like pretty girls skateboarding and enjoying the heck out of skateboarding. It's pretty great. Yeah. That's a side note. Well, I it's <laughs> that's it's a consumerist paradise. Yeah. <laughs> that does nothing but beats on your brain. It is brutality in the other direction. Or maybe it's not even in the other direction. Maybe it's the same phenomenon, just just in a different coat of paint. I'd have to think about that a little bit harder before I made that excuse. But So even in the conversation about introducing brutality to, um, to narratives, we're thinking of it in a sort of dialectic format, right? Yeah. Uh, so that those were the... Didn't we, we had two more definitions, right? Dialectic and um, narrative, which I think are pretty close to the same. Except for in a dialectic, there's definitely a binary. Like, it's hard to have a pluralistic understanding of dialectic. You're using words that I don't use often enough to talk about intelligently. So narrative is one, and I can't remember precisely what she says about narrative. But she has, like, sort of... Um, if something is changing uh, or no, she has a long discussion of narrative, right? Where she says that in a description um, or in a taxonomy, you have just these different categories. If you had a taxonomical chart, right, you would have just these character uh, categories and you would write everything out and categorize it and then present that. And that's one kind of way of thinking about the intersection of forms or forms in a context but the way that you really see them play out and interact with each other and um collide right um rather than cause which is another interesting point that we should be sure to get to um that only happens across time rather than like in a specific moment um without time so that's uh that's a narrative like if things are going along a path that it like within a story or within a story, that's a narrative. And the way that we, <laughs> the way that we normally think about things and the way our, our usual conception of um, history and like the narratives of our history is as a dialectic where two or more groups, but usually two groups or two concepts are talking to each other. And through that conversation over time, they get to different places. 
So if you think about like conservative and liberal, those are generally the two parts of the conversation that we think of in uh, our contemporary analysis of uh, politics, where um, conservatives say one thing, liberals say another, conservatives say one thing, liberals say another, so on and so forth. And that's kind of like unfolding over time. Or, um, you know, communists say one thing and capitalists say another. Communists say one thing, capitalists say another. And that's an unfolding conversation over time. And that conversation is a part of our um, lives. And you can look at it from a really sort of materialist perspective where you're saying, like, here are the material causes that were the impetus for this. So right now, one of the things that we're talking about is um, technology, right? We're talking about how technology is changing our way of communicating or uh, creating what we're thinking of as uh, sort of new forms, like those are emerging from the um, the material condition of having smartphones and uh, always being on the internet and stuff like that. So like that is a material reason that um, our world has changed and the material change has caused this social and political change. But what she might say is that like this form of short form writing in the example of Twitter is intersecting with the, um, I don't know what you call this form. It's kind of a stretch for me, but like, so with some sort of like form of this new technology of uh, holding a phone in your hand or whatever, like instant communication, handheld communication, communication device, I guess that's a walkie talkie. So it's sort of like, getting a walkie-talkie and short-form communication and, like, mashing them together, and you get Twitter, you know? And and that's a, a sort of different framework for evaluating it than looking at it as, like, the unfolding of history or this um, dialectic where some people are saying one group says one thing and, the, you know, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Um, sure. Well, you, you, don't, you don't get Twitter on a linear timeline. It's... It's the cross-section of a couple of things that happen to all be in the same place at the same time. But again, that, I mean, that, that sort of re-raises the question I started this with, is, and it may just be misinformation on my part or the circles I run in. I, is, this a novel, is this a novel concept? I don't think it's a novel concept in some ways because it's kind of rehashing a more pluralistic perspective that says, well, we don't separate things into just two camps. Um, like we see them as like a multiplicity of things all happening at once. And she, she sort of addresses that that's a long-term thing. And I think the way that she distinguishes her perspective from that perspective is to say that that perspective is very interested in liminality, you know, in these sort of like border places formless places, you know, where, where things and ideas aren't quite like tacked down yet, rather than, um, rather than looking at the structure or alternatively, it looks excessively at at one structure and makes it the causal basis for everything else, rather than looking at the multiplicity of, um, structures and the social thing that probably people are going to be most interested in is the intersectional analysis part of it where she's talking about how we assume that um when we talk about 
the way that our society is structured, we assume that um, we're working within these sort of rigid hierarchies and that that is in itself the structure of society and the structure of the institution that we're working in. So um, trying to make it more concrete. Well, I mean, we could just break out what those hierarchies are. There's racism, sexism, capitalism. I mean, there's, there's specific groupings that these things fall into, and they feel like the entirety of the skeleton by which the world goes around. I mean, it's the sort of the premise of intersectionality is that the way in which those hierarchies interact just have a force multiplier because they all push down on the same levers further and further. You have, uh, I mean, that's obviously talking in negative language because negative language is the it is the language by which hierarchies are discussed for the most part but that is that is just one way to look at it um and it's sort of a monolithic way to look at it um you have mm-hmm. you 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 have this idea in your head that you can trace any individual cause or behavior back to one of those monoliths or just to the entire intersectional complex that it's all just part of this one structure. And that's part of our brains being lazy for the most part. I don't necessarily fault anyone's logic on that point. Um, but it's, it's, it's a way to consider the world. Yeah. So we have sex, race, class, sexuality, and like all kinds of other things that, um, that are in, in her view only like, this these specific forms like that like they're these specific hierarchies uh, or they're these specific divisions that connect to these hierarchies but we see them as like the overarching uh, like ways of organizing the social world um which they are in some ways but they aren't in others so she's saying that we could get more deep into intersectional analysis if instead of saying you know what fuck these forms fuck this hierarchy, let's just, like, live in the borderlands where no one's gonna care and, like, get rid of all of the labels and, like, whatever, you know, just fuck that shit. That we could look at the intersection of things or the collision of things like the gender binary with with specific other things, like the, um, the example she uses is a coming of age novel. So like connecting the, when the gender binary intersects with a coming of age novel, um, masculine and feminine get used as uh, portions of that novel, but we, it probably could be applied to a lot of other uh, sort of situations um, where we encounter that hierarchy. I am curious what she's going to do to elaborate on that because the the gender binary. I do like her example where she talks about uh, Buildings Roman as being a feminine form of narrative uh, because it is about development. Um, and it's I forget I think I have it quoted here. Yeah, as long as pliability, the susceptibility to development, falls on the feminine side of the gender binary, the Buildings Roman will have to be a feminine genre even when its protagonists are male. I like I like that that construction and that way to look at it, but I am terribly curious how many other examples she will actually be able to bring to bear for that. Um because feminine and masculine, I mean part of the reason why that why that binary aside from all of the the sexual connotations to it, I mean part of the reason that binary is so like 
robust, at least at this point in history, is because it's got so many angles. Like, it has so much it connotes that it's possible to, from a variety of different angles, I mean, femininity is not just pliability. It's not just cooperation. It's not just caring. Like, it's this whole complex of things. So, it's easy to make it fall into one of those buckets, um, comparatively speaking. Yeah, so let's say, like, you have, like, an interpretation. Let's say you have an interpretation of the uh, the Bible, and you're seeing how the Bible connects with the gender binary. If you're using, like, a classic intersectional analysis, you would say, well, like, you'd say Christians are interested in oppressing women, and here's all the stuff in the Bible that says that women should be, um, that women should be oppressed and, like, kept, uh, you know, subservient to men and, like, blah, 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 right? So if you're using, like, our standard framework for thinking about sexism and the Bible, like, that's what you would come out with, right? But if you're looking at it in terms, if you were thinking about, here's the gender binary, and I want to see how the gender binary intersects with, uh, like, the concept of God in this religious text, then you would say, like, oh, like, it's interesting that this God is considered masculine in contemporary English, whereas if you actually look at it, you don't really see that, you don't really see a gendered term when you first start talking about God in the Old Testament, right? So that is also an application of the gender binary to the Bible, right? Or like a way of using the gender binary or like seeing the collision of the form of the gender binary and the Bible. And it yields something that's actually very feminist, which is like, where's where God is a woman, Right. I don't so know that I. I don't know woman. that I followed that <laughs> precisely. I. I feel like I would need. I feel like I need an example or two to. Yeah. To follow. So, I, well, I assume. I assume you pulled that example from something. I'm just not. I'm not familiar with it. Um. Well, I'm saying that like, one application of the gender binary to the Bible. And the one that we usually use when we think about gender in the Bible kind of more generally yields this very, like, this description of a very anti-feminist situation. Women are trapped at home. Women need to be subservient to men. Women need to serve their husband. You know, it goes God, your husband, and the woman, and blah, 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 blah. But another application of the same form, which is gender binary, to the um, to Christianity or to this like um, to the Bible, says uh, is what leads us to God as a woman. Because when we examine the Bible as feminists, we also we're still applying the the gender binary to the Bible and saying, well, we think God is a man. But what if God was a woman? And that was a feminist statement. God is a woman. I guess I'm not sure where that ties into forms, though. I mean, where... What she's saying that it can yield a sort of, like, novel way of looking at the situation as... Or, like, the um, the analysis that people come up with, in this case, as an intersection of forms rather than a simple materialist kind of thing. 
Well, that just it so. just seems weird that you'd be able to come to that conclusion because I would think just based on the handful of Bible verses that I'm thinking through, I mean, if we apply a forms analysis to them, there are a lot of instances of people using their persona in such a way to bulldoze obstacles, which is aggressively masculine. I mean, every time Jesus does anything, Jesus walks up to something, something disagrees with Jesus's persona, and Jesus overcomes it. I mean, that's that's pretty much masculine 101. Um, to be able to read the Bible in such a way as to make God feminine almost seems like you are doing something to it that's unhelpful because you are managing to overread it. Yeah. So now in the, in her forms analysis thing, you've presented a third point of view of what happens when the gender binary form collides with the Bible, which isn't a form. So that's part of the reason it's a bad example, but you know, nonetheless, so we have three examples of what happens when you think about, um, the gender binary and the Bible, or when people have looked at the gender binary in the Bible. So she's saying our perspective should be from my perspective now, which is saying what happens when the gender binary and the Bible collide versus saying, well, because you're coming at this from a particular social historical, you know, context, you you're coming up with this example. So like a standard way of responding to you would probably be to say, like, that's because you have these archetypical notions of masculine and feminine, and really they don't apply. That would be my position in this dialogue we're having, which is as a part of a larger dialectic. But using her perspective, um, rather than just responding, the what she what she would say is that you... I, I mean, probably this isn't what she would say because she has a much clearer understanding of what she's talking about <laughs> than I do. <laughs> but, like... Um, you know, theoretically, it would be like, this is an application of the gender binary to the Bible. So let's try another example. Okay. Because, yeah, I, I'm not, what I'm not saying is that I look at the Bible through the lens of the gender binary and see that God is a woman. I'm saying that in one instance where the gender binary was applied to the Bible, people came up with God is a woman. Whereas in another example, people come up with, you know, God says to oppress women. And that um, is because of different forms at play in those contexts. Um, rather than, and, and my analysis of why those outcomes were different should include a more complete description of the forms that those people who came up with those different ideas were engaging with rather than a materialist uh, or, or like a materially driven analysis, which would say, well, men want to oppress women. And that is why, you know, they, they have this motivation to read the Bible as oppressive to women, whereas women have a, a motivation to read the Bible as um, empowering the women. That would be a standard analysis. I mean, I, I agree. I just wonder how relevant, not relevant, relevance, the wrong word. I wonder how useful it is to do that, particularly with a text as old as the Bible. Yeah, I mean, her, 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 
people do it all the time. And so I wouldn't be, I'm not really reading the Bible and talking about this. I'm, I'm reading different analyses of the Bible. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that people don't do that. Um, people definitely yeah. apply forms to the Bible. I just wonder whether that's a useful exercise at some point. It's, it seems much more helpful for the last 200 years than it would be for 2,000 or however old someone would purport it to be. <laughs> yeah. Well, her um, assertion is that she can, it will yield like novel insights and give us a deeper political insight into uh, each situation that allows us to make strategic political decisions and just have a different, uh, different and more specific understanding of what's going on rather than uh, a sort of top-down taxonomical understanding or a narrative dialectic understanding or... Uh, see, I, I'm skeptical of its usefulness for that going back too far historically because the historical context, I mean, the, the whole point is to tie the social and the technical together, but you have to have something to latch on to for that to be coherent. Oh, sure. But, I mean, I'm sure you could do that. I'm, I wouldn't argue that you couldn't do that, but that's not what I'm doing. Because I'm actually looking at specific conversations that have existed for the last uh, 200 years. Because I'm looking at the way that other people have applied the gender binary to the Bible and yielded different results. And I'm saying that her like causal hypothesis is that there are other forms at play when those people look at the Bible and come out with these analyses. Um do you see what I'm saying? So I'm not actually analyzing something. Yeah, no, 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 no. I no. Again, I absolutely, I, I believe that this happens. I just don't believe that it's helpful. I guess I just, I, I, I would be, I would be scalp, I would be skeptical of any novel forms that came of it. Um, I feel like it would be much more useful to do it on things that are closer to the context that we actually live in. Uh, yeah, God as a woman was like what? I mean, I'm sure people have said it every once in a while, forever. But it has come up repeatedly in the 20th century. Sure. Right. So so God is a woman is the text that I'm analyzing, right? Not the Bible. But the statement, God is a woman, is one of the texts that I'm analyzing. And then the other one is the statement, Christianity oppresses women, which has also come up repeatedly in the last 100 years, right? So it, it's a difference in terms of... Like, the, the Bible doesn't take the place of the novel that she was talking about. Actually, it's just people's statements about it. That's part of the reason why it's a bad example. Because instead of the Bible, I should have used a different form. Well, that I, I, she doesn't specifically use the word lens, but that's the one that's coming to mind for what that would be. Because unless we're talking about their analysis in particular, and we're talking about the way in which they argue about it, the Bible does end up being what is analyzed even if we are addressing a commentary of it. I don't know. Again, it, we should find a different example to work with. It's, yeah. This one's clearly a sticking yeah. point. Anytime I've tried applying this so far, it has yielded more confusion, partly because I'm having trouble identifying what forms are which or what qualifies as a form exactly, like what I can say is portable and what I can't say is portable. Well, this is this is why I think the rest of the book will be helpful. As I set up handful of times, I need I need more examples to work with. I mean, she just doesn't. She is not given enough in the 
in all the 25 pages we've given her. Um, that's that, yeah. that has not been enough ground to break there. I almost feel like it would be more useful to pick a book that seems like it would have interesting forms and just like find the forms in the book. Um, but I assume she has poignant examples further in. So, yeah, I mean, she says she's going to look at the wire, which I've never watched. <laughs> so I was thinking about actually just watching the wire so that I understand what the fuck she's talking about. I, I would recommend watching the wire with or without forms in tow, but by all means. And this is actually the first time since I read, like I always had this like question in my heart where I was like, should I have been a lit major? Like maybe I should have just been a lit major instead of doing a technical major. Maybe I should have been honest with myself and done something like lit crit instead. But when I was reading this chapter, I felt thoroughly like I had made the right decision. (laughs) (laughs) Like finally, it gave me a lot of peace because I got to a point where I was like, okay, she's talking about a, a novel. And this is really important, and I need to pay attention. So I, that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna pay attention. It took me like, it took me like ten minutes to get through one of the pages, and it's not because it's boring or she's boring. She's great, even though this reads a little like a dissertation. Like it's still really good, and I, um, yeah, I really liked it. But like, it was just like the parts that were really, really literary. Like I'm really just dying for her to get into the social stuff more because that's that's really what excited me um when i was first looking at it i don't know what you were expecting i mean the the treatise certainly seems to revolve around literature so i think you should probably strap in for that but i know i know i I like licrit kind of adjacent philosophy quite a bit um like i enjoy it a, a lot because it's all about the form content play, the stuff that I read, because I was trained in the in the like era before her, before this book. So I have like that kind of perspective. But like, but like, yeah, this was this was a little tough for me in places. Um, so do we want to soldier forward and read the rest of it, or do we want to switch gears? I mean, I'm gonna read it. Okay, I'll let you go ahead first. <laughs> And I'll catch up with you if it seems like it's worth casting about. Yeah, I mean, for uh, Crochet Club, we're doing, um, we're going to finish reading this, and then we're going to do some more technical social network analysis um, stuff. But I I think what's really critical about what she's saying is that, like, one ideology, like, in this framework, one ideology can't become dominant over other ideologies. Like, so there's not, there's not like one form that's the center cause of anything else. And um, part of what's frustrating about it is she's presenting it as if it's a very technical system, but it's not. Um, frankly, it's, it's just not that technical of a system. And part of it is that there is a distinction between these sort of technical forms, which she's describing sometimes when she is talking about them and the sort of like squishier some some sorts of squishier things so she says like each form has its own logic which made me crazy and probably i dragged my club through like a 30 minute incredibly tedious nitpicky conversation about whether or not each like 
every form does not have it like a rhyming couplet can you re- can it really be said to have its own logic like you could say a rhyming couplet is an operation in within another logic do you know what i mean or within another kind of system but like it's it doesn't constitute a system of its own and that really bothered me i mean she already used the word form and sort of admitted up front that it was sloppy so i mean the fact that she's willing to use the word logic there in an equally haphazard way does not surprise me <laughs> yeah it's it's good though like i'm really enjoying reading it and um I especially like like the different ways of I think it could yield a very interesting way of talking about relationships between um, forms. And I've been trying to like think about that and I've been really struggling to find what um, what the unit of like observation is. And form is a great one because it could encompass like thoughts and a blank uh, concept of human And so, like, they, you know, she talks about this a little where she's saying, like, what we're talking about happens at such different scales, you know, like from a comma to, like, the galaxy, you know. She has a couple of the those relatively cute comparisons between uh, the other one was uh, thus the arc of a narrative can in its own way pry open a cell's enclosed walls. It's the the little comparison between the literary and the physical and i actually think that the word form is also like that being that kind of cute where because she's using it in uh in reference to like formalism or structuralism so formal or structural approaches to looking at uh literature so she's sort of she's sort of being cute about it which is great i that's my favorite thing about lit crit is you get all of these layers of meaning in a lot, like in really excellent work. They're like, every word is very loaded and it's fantastic. Which again, that's what makes it, to round again, makes it surprising to me that this was not a more generally accepted idea, the concept of the overlapping of, the overlapping of these things, as opposed to seeing them as some sort of like massive structure, I that. That seems to be absolutely when people talk about great works of fiction or poet poetry at the, at the very least is all about the crisscrossing of different ideas and when you get a couple of them to go past each other in the right way and they spark like that's exactly what makes them profound. I just it seems weird that this hadn't been explicated. Yeah, I mean sometimes that's true of a very like good or timely idea. Where once you see it written out and explicated, you're like, oh, of course. Yeah. Of course. So I think this might be that kind of scenario. I don't know. Yeah. And also, I don't read a lot in this field, so I have no idea how novel it really is. Me neither. So I'm relying (laughs) on your word, and for that matter, hers, uh, since she certainly immediately points out that this is not something that's been done before. So we're sort of also taking her word for it. But do you think that that as uh, as like social analysts, social political analysts, that this presents a, a sort of new and interesting framework for looking at things? 
because I, I do, I think that we've gotten kind of stale in our conversations about how society works and it's, it's really not, um, we're really in a position to talk seriously about how, uh, how sexual and racial hierarchies sort of work, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, in our society. And, um, because like the understanding that, um, those sexual, those hierarchies do exist, that's become very well acknowledged overall, I think. Like, I think, like, most of the people who generate these kinds of conversations, like, the conversation has become very mainstream. Like, freaking Taylor Swift said that she was a feminist. Like, God, can you imagine Britney Spears in 1990-whatever saying, I'm a feminist? Like, that would be just totally bizarre. So I think that that is an acknowledgement of structural inequality between, like, men and women, for example. Um, and it's all gaining a lot more ground because there's an ability to give examples very clearly that are difficult to dismiss. And I think that's really, that adds something pretty valuable. Um, or that means that we have the opportunity to uh, present something that's a lot deeper, more nuanced and more accurate because I'm, I, I don't feel backed into a corner in the same way of having to say this exists, this exists, this exists. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I would hate to have to be the cynic of the two of us here. You used the word nuanced and it was the one I was going to latch on to is that generally speaking, the uh, public discourse doesn't get to have nuance because it requires way, way too much ground level foundational understanding of what's going on. You have to simply move the window of discussion onto whatever you think is nuanced. And sort of the hope is that you get to a point where it can be assumed that this hierarchy exists, like you said, and then the focus shifts away from its presence to what it means. And so if that is nuanced, then so be it. We have a more nuanced conversation about it. And I, I think it's entirely possible it'll head in that direction. Um, I just don't personally count on things like that. So <laughs> Yeah, I, I think we're ready to have arguments, more arguments about how it works, more publicly than they used to be. Obviously, I mean, feminists have always been having these arguments. Oh, yeah. Tribes of feminists and, you know, like blah, 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 blah. Well, that was the Cyborg Manifesto was full of that stuff. I mean, it's still five years ahead of anywhere we will be, and it was written 30 years ago. I mean, that's just the nature of where a conversation can take you if you actually can sit down and have one. Yeah, I think part of what was appealing about this book and this uh, perspective for me is that it's pluralism, like, kind of suggests the possibility of some kind of progress and change through a narrative. Um, but it doesn't, like, it kind of comes up with a neat way of saying, well, like, this idea is going to show up again and again and again and again and again. And, like, that doesn't mean that there isn't progress. Because before I had read this, that's what I was kind of stuck in thinking about. Because, you know, just as you were mentioning earlier, my reading is thoroughly bizarre. So I just, like, read, you know, it's practically random what I read. And, like, um, 
So you'll read something from like 1920 and you'll be like, this is literally the exact same argument I had yesterday on Facebook. And it really diminishes your understanding of progress and or your feeling that there is progress or progress is, you know, a thing um, in a conversation. Um, so I like this forms concept because that just means those forms were like at play in that moment and not that there's not a possibility for progress or change or change of perspective. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that the world tree is stuck in the 1920s. It's that this one particular sliver of the universe is stuck in 1920, but that doesn't necessarily reflect on the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Well, Alicia, um, it's about my bedtime, so <laughs> I'm unfortunately going to have to cut this off. But, um, yeah, let me know if the rest of the book is worth diving into. Otherwise, I, I have a lot of Southern Reach to read over the next two weeks. So, um, Do you want to do a Game of Thrones conversation? I have a fairly structured... I mean, I have my essay planned. Oh, I, I don't even know who I would... I guess that's one person you said, Thomas. That's already three people. I have a lot of people who have thoughts about that show, so I'm not sure how that yeah, would go. Yeah, Thomas and I agree tremendously, so if you want to <laughs> represent another view. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. Oh, well. All right, Alicia, I'm going to let you go. All right. Talk to you later. Talk to you later.